Good morning. To get started, I want you all to do something with me. Using your imagination, travel back in time with me to around the year 500 BC. You're an ancient Israelite, and your family has recently returned to your ancestral homeland, in particular, the city of Jerusalem. Your return comes after 70 hard years of exile. Your kingdom was destroyed, your people were conquered, and you were forced to live in a foreign land surrounded by a foreign people run by their foreign kings and their gods. But now you're back, back at home, and desperately working to rebuild your life from the ground up. It's during this time that one day you're in Jerusalem's temple. And while you're there, you hear a priest loudly proclaim, Praise the Lord! Praise the name of the Lord! Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. This catches you off guard, and now you stop to reflect. How do you feel in response to that proclamation, that command to praise the Lord? Staying in character, I can think of three responses we might have in that situation. One, excitement. Yes, let's praise the Lord. We're finally back in the promised land. We have survived. Let's thank and praise God. Two, exhaustion. Yes, we should praise the Lord, but I'm so tired. Life right now is so difficult. And while I should praise the Lord, I'm just not feeling it right now. Three, conflict. Should I praise the Lord? Life was so hard during the exile, and it's still hard now. Plus, Babylon, the kingdom that conquered us, they had amazing gods that brought them victory. Is this God of Israel really worth my time? While these three responses may have made sense for the Israelites back in 500 BC, they all probably sound familiar to us today. How do you feel when you're hearing our calls to worship today? When it's time to get ready for church on a Sunday morning, how do you feel? When it's time to gather your kids for family devotions on a weekday night, what's your attitude? Or think back to a few minutes ago, what was going through your head as you clicked on the link to open up this sermon? I'm guessing that for you, like it is for me, that answer is based on what's going on in your life at the time. Maybe you're excited about worship because with all the extra time at home, you felt God blessing blessings on your family, on your marriage the past few weeks. Maybe worship sounds like an exhausting thing you have to do. You know it's important, but you also know you have a long work week ahead of you. Maybe you're totally conflicted about worship. With everything going on with COVID-19, these are uncertain and even scary times. Is this really the time to be praising God? Just like the ancient Israelites, there could be a lot going on in our minds when we hear calls to praise the Lord. But, also like the ancient Israelites, we have a lot of reasons to answer that call. Today, I want us to discover that no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're feeling, no matter what's going on in the world, it is always appropriate, always good, and always beneficial to praise the Lord. So let's turn to Psalm 135. Earlier, I read out the Psalms call to worship, but now 
Let's read and examine the full psalm. Let's hear the call to worship, but also take in the reasons the psalm gives behind that call. Let's learn why we all should join in this praise we have been called to. Listen as I read Psalm 135. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in all the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Shion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Before diving into the first main point of the psalm, I want to draw your attention to verses 3 and 5. What we see here is something of an annotated table of contents, a roadmap. The psalm is outlining three reasons why we should praise the Lord. In most of your Bibles, you'll see the word for indicating these three reasons. Let's walk through them. Verse 3. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. The psalmist verse calls the reader, the potential worshiper, you and me, to reflect on God's character, his qualities, namely, his power as creator. The simple statement is made, the Lord is good. Next, in verse 4 we read, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. We are reminded that God has a people, and he loves them. In the case of the ancient Israelites, they would be thinking of their nation, Israel. 
their minds would immediately be drawn back to Deuteronomy 7.6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God made a covenant with the nation of Israel. He made a promise. With nothing to gain, he would love them, care for them, and provide for them. His people were and are his treasured possession. Thirdly, going back to the psalm, look at verse 5. For I know the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. The psalm introduces the final reason to worship God at all times. The Lord, the God of Israel, is greater than all other gods. He has no rival, no equal. He is greater. To sum up, we see here three fours. And these three fours introduce us and draw out for us the three realities the psalm will unpack. One, praise the Lord for who he is. Two, praise the Lord for what he has done. And three, praise the Lord for there is no one like him. In a lot of ways, the psalmist is like a coach giving a timeout pep talk. If you see movies like Coach Carter or Remember the Titans, you probably know the scenes I'm talking about. It's nearing the end of the big game. The team is down. Some of the players are exhausted and some just want to give up. But in that moment, the coach calls a timeout. He pulls the players aside and gives them a rousing speech, reminding them why they're there, just how hard they work to get there and how bad they want to win. By the end of the speech, the players are renewed, motivated, and they get on out there and give it all they have. In a timeless way, that's the psalmist. The people of God will have ups and downs. They'll suffer, they'll be exhausted, feel hopeless. And sometimes they just need a rousing speech to remind them just how great their God is, just how worthy of worship and praise he is. And like the pep talk, the goal by the end of the psalm is that God's people will feel motivated and they'll get on out there and praise the Lord. To get this going, the psalm first reminds the worshipers who God is. Follow as I read verses 6 and 7. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Praise the Lord. Why? For he is the sovereign creator. What do we mean by sovereign? Unlike any creature, unlike any other being, it can only truly be said of our God that he does whatever he pleases. Whatever he sets his mind to do, not only can he do it, he freely does it. No power, no authority, no limitation constrains him. Whatever he desires is his. 
Whatever he wants done, gets done. No ifs, ands, or buts. And if that wasn't clear enough, the psalmist reminds us just how all-encompassing this freedom and sovereignty is. Whether in the heavens, on earth, or in the seas, God does whatever he pleases. There is no border binding him. The psalm explains how this sovereignty governs creation. You know those forces of nature that are beyond your control and literally dictate your life? Our God runs them. You know the clouds that bring the rains our farmers still rely on to grow our crops? The Lord causes them to rise from the ends of the earth. You know the lightning that splits the sky and causes massive wildfires throughout the world? The Lord guides each and every bolt. You know the winds that cool you on a hot summer day or can blow your ship miles off course? They come from the Lord's storehouses. All these natural forces are examples of things which are beyond human control, yet shape the course of human lives. The psalm is telling us that our God, the Lord, is in absolute control over all of them. Even the hurricane's wind is in his control. So, why praise the Lord? Because all that stuff that is out of your hands, all that stuff that is shaping and changing your life, all that stuff that's causing you stress, anxiety, and fear, that's in the hands of the Lord. COVID-19, that's in the hands of the Lord. And that's good news, because as we learned back in verse 3, the Lord is good. So praise the Lord, for he is the sovereign creator. For our next point, I want to skip down to the psalmist's third point. In proclaiming reasons why God's people should praise him, the psalm gives an interesting commentary on idols and idolatry. Follow with me as I read verses 15 to 18. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Many of us today, especially those of us who grew up in the secular West, might not really appreciate the concept and danger of idols. So again, let's get back into the mind of our ancient Israelite friend. Idols were literally everywhere, especially if you were living in a foreign nation during the exile. You probably couldn't walk a, a city block without seeing an idol being worshipped. The idols and the gods they represented were the movers and shakers of their day. Your neighbor got a good deal at the market. He tells you it was because a commerce god was on his side. A general won a battle. He says it's because he sacrificed to the idol of the war god. For the pagans surrounding Israel, idols were a given. You give them tribute, they give you favor. And a lot of the time, it probably seemed to be true. The pagan Babylonians, supposedly with the favor of their gods, had conquered Israel after all. 
In case we're thinking that this was harmless superstition, we have to remember that idolatry was far from just simple exchanges. To get a better picture, we should remember that visiting temple prostitutes and offering child sacrifices were common practices in ancient idol worship. Idolatry, attempting to earn the favor of pagan gods, could easily come at the expense of personal dignity, sexual purity, and even human life. Knowing these practices, how appealing and tempting they could be, the psalmist counters their influence through mockery. He uses satire to remind the reader what's actually going on. Idols are just metal objects formed by human hands. They have eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear. The gods behind them are nothing but lies. In and of themselves, they have no power whatsoever. Simply put, idols and idolatry are dumb, truly stupid, a colossal waste of time. At the end of the day, they're just rocks, people. Yet, after mocking idols, essentially calling them dumb and stupid, the psalmist gives a powerful warning. They do have power if you give them power. Verse 18. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. While idols were just lumps of stone or carved pieces of wood, trusting in them, practicing their worship, did have an effect. And that effect was damaging. And while we don't really have idols of gold and silver today, we certainly have similar temptations. We have things and people and objects we're tempted to take and elevate as gods. We have plenty of things that are as innocent or even good, like gold and silver, surrounding us that we're tempted to turn or carve into idols. While we don't often use the religious terms, idolatry is certainly a living concept. And trusting in those idols we make certainly can bring us down. If you've grown up in church, you probably know the many classic modern-day idols. And Christians rightly warn against them. Things like money, power, reputation. These are good things that become bad when we make them into idols. When we trust in them to provide us happiness and true security. But there are a lot more idols out there than those classic ones. In this digital age, think about the Instagram superstar or the podcast guru. There can be a temptation to see their success and think, if I'm just like them, if I just do what they do, I'll be set. And while these people might have some really good things to say, they might be helpful to follow and listen to generally, they can be turned into idols. You can tell yourself that if you just follow everything they say, you'll find happiness. You can find yourself believing that if you do everything they do, you'll be successful. But we all know that that can end up biting you. What happens when that podcast you trust completely preaches bad advice? Or what happens if that Instagram superstar, the one you think is perfect and you dream of being, turns out to be a malicious, vindictive, terrible person? 
If you've made them an idol, someone you trust in absolutely, someone you look up to without question, you're either going to be left in despair or you'll follow them down a horrible path. Making idols is dangerous. Idolatry is dumb and stupid. If you make idols and trust in them, you'll one day end up just like them. Powerless, hopeless, lifeless. By presenting this satire and that following warning, the psalmist is actually pointing to the Lord by comparison. While idols are made by humans, the Lord, the true God, is the maker of humans. While idols have mouths but don't speak, the Lord, by the power of his word, made all creation. While idols have ears but don't hear, the Lord hears every cry and prayer from his people. While idols have no breath in their mouths, the Lord has breath, and it gives life itself. Thinking about that implied comparison, that earlier warning becomes a beautiful promise. Those who trust in idols will become dumb like them, but those who trust in the Lord will become righteous like him. That promise is the Christian hope of sanctification. For those of us who trusted in Jesus Christ, who by faith have joined his people, we know that we will be conform to his image. We will become like him. By the work of the Spirit of God in us, we will be made truly righteous. That's a promise. Trusting in idols leads you to foolishness. Trusting in Jesus leads you to righteousness. So, praise the Lord, for he is great, far greater than any idol. Finally, Let's examine the point made in verses 8 to 14. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Shion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Here we get a powerful history. These are amazing stories actual times and events when God has acted on his covenant promises to his people. The first example is the plagues of Egypt. After 400 years of slavery, the people of Israel were at their lowest point ever. They faced a situation that seemed utterly hopeless. And what happened? The Lord came to their rescue. He entered into that situation with power. He unleashed the most terrible and awe-inspiring wonders the world had ever seen. To save his people, the Lord struck down Pharaoh, the most powerful king on the earth. He sent plagues that demonstrated his power over the idols of Egypt. Not stopping there, 
the psalmist draws to mind how the Lord defeated all the kings and nations that stood in the way of Israel on their way to the promised land. While he gives some examples, the point is clear. These weren't little obstacles blocking the sidewalk. Confronting God's people were numerous nations, tribal confederacies, legions of mighty men who lived for battle. And what did the Lord do? He remained faithful to his covenant with Israel. He went before his people and struck down their foes. Victory so great that the name of the Lord will endure forever. So total that his reputation will be known through all generations. And why did he do it? Not just for his own namesake. He did it because he loves his people. Nothing can get in the way of God loving his people. Nothing can stop God from providing for them. Though we might not understand his timing, though his action might not seem obvious, know this. If you're one of God's people, nothing can separate you from the God who loves you. No Pharaoh, no hostile nation, no sickness, no disaster can stop God from being faithful to his promises. That's why in verse 14, the psalmist is able to declare a powerful promise. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Not might, not hopefully, the Lord will do those things. We here today can see how the Lord was indeed faithful to that promise. In the greatest of ways, the Lord did vindicate his people. He did have compassion on his servants, and he did that through Jesus Christ. In Matthew 1:21, we see that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth with a mission. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This was a mission of vindication. Jesus came as the long-prophesied Messiah. This was a mission of compassion. Jesus came to save his people. Jesus came because the people of God were enslaved to sin and death. Once he was here, Jesus lived the perfect life and took a punishment he didn't deserve. All on behalf of God's people, his people. And through his death on the cross, Jesus won the greatest battle in history. By taking the punishment of his people, he defeated sin and death itself. And in, if that somehow wasn't enough, he proved all that true by rising from the dead three days later. This was the vindication and compassion that the psalmist and the ancient Israelites were ultimately looking forward to. And this is the same vindication and compassion that the people of God today now have the privilege of looking back to. But how do you know if you're one of God's people? How do you know you're one of the people Jesus came to save? How do you know if you're one of the people God will tear down pharaohs to save? There's only one question to ask. Have you turned from your sin and placed your trust in Jesus Christ? Have you abandoned your idols 
and trusted in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. If you haven't, I call on you to do that. This text calls on you to do that. Acknowledge you're a sinner and turn to Jesus as your Savior. But if you have, rest knowing you're one of God's people and get to praising. Through Psalm 135, we just learned how God is absolutely sovereign, greater than any idol, and amazingly faithful to his promises. Whether you're feeling excited, exhausted, or conflicted, these three realities about God will never change. These realities were true for the psalmist thousands of years ago, and they're true for us today. During the good times and the bad, after a relaxing day or at the start of what's sure to be an exhausting week, in a peaceful world or in a world gripped by COVID-19, God is still sovereign, still far better than any idol, and we, his people, are still his treasured possession. How should we respond to this? Verses 19 to 21 give the answer. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we praise and thank you. You are our sovereign God. You're far greater than any idol, and you are faithful to your promises. We're so grateful that we are your people. Remind us of this throughout the coming weeks and months, that no matter what's going on in our lives, what's going on in the world, you are who you say you are, and you have done amazing things. Bless us and keep us. In Jesus' name, amen. I pray that this passage and this message were an encouragement to you, a comfort. If you found it helpful, I encourage you, please share it with your friends and family. And as always, for more messages about God's love, God's worthiness, visit us at www.gracebc.ca. God bless you.